Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into the show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate squash player for over 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average squash player is I've also made squash my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national team activity for US squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it. And if you do, please share, comment on any of the social media platforms or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is trying to get the word out. So any help is much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Squash Radio listeners, we've got a special announcement. We've got some big news to share. We are thrilled to announce that Squash Radio has its first ever sponsor. And we couldn't be more excited about this for many, many reasons. But here's three quick ones. One, Squash Radio has been a way to engage the squash community by sharing some great stories of the people involved in the sport. So to have a sponsor, partner, come in and support this initiative, and who is just excited to bring these stories to you all, is truly an honor. Number two, the owner and CEO of this company is a squash player himself and has spent the majority of his career earning his living as a squash professional. He has since branched out into the world of business, but like me, his core passion is still in the squash world. Number three, their products can not only make a difference in your lives, but also are helping make the world a better place for us all. So as I said, we couldn't be more thrilled to have this partner involved, and we will be sharing more about their journey. And you might just see their products at a squash court near you. More to come. What about this? This call is being recorded. For some quick background on our guests in this episode, here's a quick overview. Lauren Pachiza Zaba is the executive director and founder of Squash Drive, the squash and education alliance program based out of Oakland, California. Lauren has been at the helm since 2009, leading the program to evolve and grow to increase their missions program. We cover a variety of topics from what's it like navigating their core student programming during a pandemic, how Lauren positioned herself to start Squash Drive, and where the program is looking to break new ground in the sport, literally. After college, Lauren launched her career in marketing, working at companies like Comcast and JP Morgan Chase before coming to a decision point on what to do next. When these crossroads happen, like many others, Lauren reached back to her roots and decided to explore how squash can make an impact in people's lives. Today, Lauren and the Squash Drive Board of Directors are embracing innovative thinking to be the first SCA program to have outdoor courts. The outdoor concept started as 
wouldn't this be great to have? But during COVID times, the conversation gave new perspective to the need and urgency. The growth of outdoor squash has been a topic of discussion for many decades, but only a handful of courts currently exist. There is major growth opportunity in this area, but we first need to connect the passion, people, and resources for more projects to be successful. Lauren has been on the West Coast for 15 years. She's originally from Philadelphia, and while attending University of Pennsylvania, she captained the squash team. It was a pleasure to connect with Lauren as a guest, and we would love to hear from anyone who's looking to grow squash outdoors. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hey there, squash fans. I'd like to give a big squash radio welcome to Lauren Pachizo Zaba, who's calling in today from the East Coast, which is a big transition for her and her family. And before we jump into one of our main topics today, which is going to be talking about the growth of outdoor squash. First, Lauren, I want you to tell us what's been going on in the Zaba household. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat with you today. You mentioned we made a big transition. We left San Francisco in July and have been on the East Coast, and we are settling into our new home and kind of a new world in Amherst, Massachusetts. So we are really excited to be here, excited for Busani and his new job to be the head coach at Amherst College for the men's and women's squash team. And yeah, Zoe and Zach are our twins that are almost three and they are loving the space and the outdoors and the hot summer for now. And you are still the executive director of Squash Drive and you've been managing an SEA program during this challenging time. How has that been for you, your team, most importantly, the students? How is that going? Yeah, Connor, I am working remotely and we all have been working remotely since we were put in shelter in place. I believe it was March 17th. Have gone to total virtual programming. Our staff has been all virtual. Lots of Zoom, just so many people right now. It's a whole new world. So I would say there's been a lot of adjustments on all in all areas, students, staff, one kind of unique thing, which has been amazing, is that our board of directors, we have 18 people on our board of directors, and it's since we've been in the shelter in place and coming out of it a little bit, but we have been meeting over Zoom every two weeks, and that's been an amazing time for us to come to- together, and the board has been extremely supportive. So I've been excited about that in particular, seeing this as an opportunity to engage and have more conversations that weren't happening before due to the challenges that are going on and so many challenges. I'm curious. I like the way you frame that in terms of during a challenging time, what are the positive things that come out of it? And is there anything that you think and and put yourself in the student shoes who are experiencing probably the most dramatic shift from what they were, what the program was delivering to them? Is there anything that they're is a positive that's coming out of this for them? That's a great question. I think that our students are kind of taking things day by day. And I think remote learning has been hard. It's been harder for some students than other students, harder for some families than other families. Everybody brings to this situation a unique perspective. I would say that the kind of the amazing thing is that it has given our staff an opportunity to actually talk to our parents more. So 
the kids are missing their friends or missing the, missing the socialization. But in some ways, it's really made everybody slow down and given us time to really get to know it is over the phone or on Zoom. But it's amazing. People are so busy and they pick their kids up after programming and we get a quick, oh yeah, Jaleel did great today on his homework or he played well in the squash court not necessarily having that. So how are you really conversation? So I do think that's been an opportunity. If I could see a positive, that would be, I think my team and I would say that's one positive to, to have been able to have some kind of engage in a new way and kind of a meaningful way. Cause we really have been checking in and making sure our students and families are doing okay, because it has been so much going on. Do you think that there are routines that are being utilized now that you'll try and incorporate once regular programming comes back? That's a great, that's a great question. I do think there is just with deeper relationships that have formed. I think that that will be an opportunity for us to continue those. I do think, I don't know, I don't know what the next six months to a year to two years looks like. We have a lot of challenges in terms of logistics, which we can maybe talk about later. But I think that just knowing that not being afraid to pick up the phone and, and call our families even more and, and riding off that trust that's been built over these last kind of six, five, six months, I think will help us in continuing the growth of those partnerships with the families that we serve. That's great. I know the challenges for everyone that's facing, but particularly trying to deliver an excellent program now in a remote matter is no small undertaking. So I applaud you, your team, your board, and most importantly, the parents and the children that are trying to navigate this as well. I'd like to shift gears into one of the main topics for today, and that's talking about outdoor squash. And is there really a potential for growth of squash in this area? And you and I started talking a few, about a year ago, I'd say, and more recently in the past few weeks. And why don't you share a little bit of the context of how this topic even came about for you? I would love to. So just for a little background, Squash Drive currently uses the UC Berkeley squash courts. And for anybody that has been to the UC Berkeley squash courts, they are converted racquetball courts. The three courts that we have access to are in a basement. We call it the dungeon. It's perfect in a lot of ways because we can be loud and have the space to ourselves. But to be honest, it's not the most inviting environment in some, in some ways. So I've been thinking about outdoor courts for over a year. I believe I talked to Kevin Klipstein maybe two years ago, just, I don't remember exactly how the conversation came about, but chatted to him about outdoor courts. And one of the people he suggested I talked to was you, Connor, and I'm glad I did. It's something that because of the our location, so we're in Northern California, we definitely don't get the some of the elements. I've talked to the gentleman from Public Squash, and we saw that court go up and Definitely, when we think about whether it's in terms of location, it feels like San Francisco, Oakland area could be, the Bay Area could be a great place to have outdoor courts. So that's where we started, that could we figure out a way to get outdoor courts? And something that also, and I should back up for a second here. So as I, I spoke about UC Berkeley, the long-term vision for Squash Drive is to build a facility of our own. And we've been thinking about that for quite some time. Land is the challenge and we are working. We're trying to partner with the city of Oakland to find a piece of land at a park in combination with either something that exists or near a school 
or some kind of playground, field, basketball court, tennis court, um, something where we could create an opportunity for access to bring more people to see our sport. So that's been on my mind for quite some time. And now when you think about a facility, you don't necessarily think about outside, but when I took where we are, is there an opportunity to possibly have an indoor facility with one outdoor court? That was one idea. Then we'll kind of, and then I'll be honest, COVID hit and the last few months have really brought some challenges. And one challenge that I know other SEA programs are having is that we are partnered with UC Berkeley. College campus is not open right now. And for the foreseeable future, I'm not sure when they're going to allow access to where we currently play. So this has been ramped up in my mind as a real opportunity and the right time to to push this idea forward. So that was a long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, I, I think this is a broader topic and it shows the way that these needs come about as well as opportunities. And I think that this has been an area of interest for the sport to explore, yet no real catalyst event in order to do so. I, just in the past six weeks, eight weeks, the number of conversations and people inquiring about outdoor squash has increased 4X. The sad part is there's no, in my opinion, there's no right model just yet. And I think there, while uh, some of the factors are land being one of the biggest, in my opinion, building a court, as we've talked about, is anywhere between 85000 to $150,000 per court. And that's certainly no small chunk of change, but manageable potentially in comparison to land opportunity. There's a lot of factors that go in here. And I think that this is, we're breaking new ground and exactly. we don't have the exactly. answers feels, just yet. It feels like it's maybe that maybe a positive that can come out of this coronavirus can be that it's uh, allowed some people to take the time to think about outdoor courts. And also the word access for me really comes to mind when I think outdoor squash courts as well. In terms of, you were also sharing a little bit of thinking about this in a more broader context of not just, hey, how can squash drive fit into this landscape on the West Coast? So in terms of trying to use this as a potential catalyst event for outdoor squash or thinking about how to grow the sport differently, how are you and your board thinking about this problem? We have been, so Squash Drive has had a facilities committee for quite some time. As I mentioned, we were thinking about indoor courts and a facility of our own and have been working on that. But during this time, making a shift, we have started the conversation with our facilities committee, with the greater board to say, this seems like what might be feasible. Right now in San Francisco and Oakland, there are no squash courts that are open to adults. There are some junior camps that happen, but no squash is open. And I do know that people are cautious, but people are anxious to get back to playing. And I think getting creative and thinking of a new way for it to happen. Uh, the board is engaged on this topic. We have a committee that is focused, which is great. So I have three or four people that I can go to just about daily to pick their brain on. What do you think about this idea? I know we're going to, we're going to pick your brain, Connor, about outdoor courts and get your experience and knowledge. I've also been in conversation with U.S. Squash. As you mentioned, lots of people are asking this question now. And my thought is, let's see what's out there. Who's talking about it and find a way to collaborate if possible. I know some folks in Southern California, 
another great location for outdoor courts are thinking about it. So I've been in touch with some folks down there to try to put together just some kind of collaboration so we can all learn whether it's together or learn separately, but bring it back together and just been trying to have as many different conversations as I can to explore the opportunity. Lots of questions, Connor, like you said, there really is a very few examples of this. So especially in the United States, I don't know about internationally, actually, but I don't, do you know the answer to that? Are there outdoor squash courts? There's a handful of examples and likely some that we aren't well documented. For instance, I know in the hotter areas, like whether it's Egypt or Pakistan, India, that there have been exploration of, of outdoor courts, even in South America, there's been sightings of them. But that's a good question. I know I, I was doing some quick research for this question yesterday and Australia Squash had put together a documentation and it was citing actually more areas in America. Vermont, back in 1998, built a, a concrete outdoor squash court. Steve Poli, if I'm getting his name correct. And there's also one sighting in the Minnesota, which my old boss, John Flanagan, he used to go play on in the summers, and this was in 90s and 2000s. So those are really were private usage, so to speak, or um, not well-known. And then obviously the more well-known ones, which are coming up now in New York City, which Public Squash led the initiative on, and then the, the new one with the Steel Squash Court, which is very interesting. That's great. Yeah, I am excited to continue learning and we are actively engaging and looking at options for land and then simultaneously securing land is the first kind of the first goal, but simultaneously, can we have one, two or three courts outside with some kind of covering? I know there's lots of questions around the, does it feel like a squash court? How does the ball play? I think for us, it's really just about, can we get kids back hitting a ball? For me, safety would be the highest priority. Making sure the floor, I don't know all the details, but making sure that we could find a way to make it safe and fun for the kids as we move forward during this kind of very strange time. <laughs> I think the way that you and your board are approaching it is, I completely agree with. And for a long time, or I came to this realization probably five or eight years ago, with the growth of squash is really actually just tied to the success of real estate deals. And I think those are the lead expertise that we need to be bringing in and forming a collaboration effort around that. And I think that we're fortunate that we do have so many successful real estate people that play the sport of squash, and we need to be forming a committee that can information share more readily. Because a lot of the same questions of how to grow anything, whether it's a franchise, a successful brick and mortar shop, like the elements are the same. We're just happening instead of it being a store, we're putting in squash courts and what are the components that you need there. So we have an opportunity as a small sport to really be cohesive and we should tap into that, which I don't think we've done quite well just yet. I agree. I agree. And I, I like that thought a lot about even possibly bringing in more real estate expertise to our committee at this time might be the right opportunity because I think there's lots of different areas to focus on. But I think that's a great thought on that topic. So, I mean, and even just looking for the growth opportunities, I think the East Coast presents uh, a tremendous opportunity just because of the number of squash players there, but the challenges year-round playability. So, you know, other climates which are more conducive to year-round play, California, an obvious one, potentially Florida, 
Texas, like those are basically countries unto themselves that if we can figure out how in those areas to be successful and have, having outdoor squash, we can really change the tide of the sport, which for such a long time has been, I would say, having sustainable growth, and or, but it, it, it hasn't quite achieved the levels that I think we'd all desire. And it's interesting when we start mapping this out, think of how many squash courts are in the San Francisco area. And if you had the ballpark it, how many squash courts do you think there are? like in a 50 mile radius around where you guys are, were. I, right, where we were, there's 11 courts in San Francisco proper, 11 courts, which allowed us to host gold tournaments at the time. And those are on hold, obviously, right now. I would say there's about 25 to 40 in the, if you did a 50 mile radius, that would be my guess. There's new courts in Fremont. There's courts in the South Bay and the Peninsula and some courts in the East Bay. So I would say 25 to four. I, I should know the answer to that, but I don't. But that's a good, that's an estimate. But I think uh, you mentioned this. I, I listened to your interview with David Kay, and I'll give him a shout out. And he was talking about the need for more squash courts in the Chicago area and I completely agree with that for the Bay Area. There is a high demand, definitely more juniors wanting to play, more adults wanting court time and kind of this competition for court time. And it's it's been a challenge to figure out ways to get more courts. And I think we need to get creative. Yeah. And, and that's where, so if, let's just say 40, 40 courts in a 50 mile radius around the San Francisco area. And then I don't have the answer to this one readily, but how many tennis courts are there? And Thousand, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hundreds, right. if not encroaching on thousands. And from a, if we think about this from a real estate perspective, if you fit nothing else on a one tennis court, you can put eight squash courts for comparison to a size perspective. I think what we do need to do is if there is demand, we need to increase supply and then we need resources in order to fill those, that new supply. Otherwise, they just sit there on the shelf. But if we're combining efforts, think of lots of other SCA programs have been in a similar position in view of not having a permanent home, and they were capping out at between 80 to 160 students they could service. You build more courts, that proposition value changes dramatically. And then I, I, I've always been a big fan of the mixed-use court approach. Hey, how do we fulfilling SEA programs needs, how we're we doing middle school programs needs, high school program needs. And I call it the ice rink model in terms of the amount of programming that anyone ice rink does is substantial. Everything from junior leagues to adult leagues, which are crazy popular in lots of areas, but also think of figure skating. That is still the same rink. They just repurpose it or use different time allocations. It's great. It's a great, I love that analogy and thinking about what else can we do on squash courts, whether it's fitness classes or just different targets for different times of day. And I, I, th I think that's one of the challenges that programs have. And that's where the community squash model, I think you and I spoke about it briefly, and I'm definitely interested in learning more about it. And I know Barrett's done a great job in Portland. And I know there's a few different types of ways to do it, but it seems like there would be a great opportunity to create more access and make sure the court's getting utilized in, a, in more hours of the day, so to speak. 
And is there a timeline that you and your team are thinking of trying to an ideal time to try and solve this? Or are you waiting for the right solution to come around and it's chicken in the egg? I would say our goal is to make this happen as soon as possible. We're in a situation where we don't have current access to courts. We are still running program virtually right now. Um, the start of school happened a couple weeks ago and we're supporting our students online. We are starting pods outside where we will be doing socially distant activities to engage our students. And our goal is as quickly as possible. And it is a little bit about two different pieces. Where are we going to put a court? And if we don't have permanent space, could it be temporary? And then which kind of product, so to speak? And we are very interested in moving forward as quickly as possible. And I don't recall, have you had conversations with the local parks and recs departments or other government entities within the Bay Area? Yeah, so we have been in talks with the city of Oakland and the Oakland Parks and Recs Department for just over a year and a half now trying to see what could be um, an option we were originally thinking for, a physical building, but that has not progressed as quickly as we would like. We have a site that we would be very excited about in West Oakland, which would be a great location in a lot of ways. But we are in the process. We have a draft proposal into the city. It's a process going through the, the local, through Oakland Parks and Recs, but we would be, we're very excited about the progress. It's slow, but slow and steady wins the race, they say. So we're still yeah. working on that. So we are in conversation and have a draft proposal through and hoping to get them to be able to get in front of the commission board soon. Well, I know uh, a little bit about this because of the public squash journey that they went on, that they were having similar conversations in New York. And in terms of highlighting an advantage that we do have in the sport is we can make these installations completely temporary. So it depends from a permitting perspective and then also the level of scrutiny that your project will go under goes down different pipelines depending on what you're proposing. So we're able to put it down a more temporary project and it got six months testing. And then during that testing period, it was successful. So then you get the renewal opportunity. So I think that there's, this is just one of the simple things of just sharing that information and having, whether it's a website or, or a centralized area that you can say, here's how we did it. This is, these are the challenges that we found here's how to share the information. So there's power there. And the fact that you guys are leading part of this and is going to be a huge learning opportunity for all of us. Yeah. Well, we are excited to learn from your experience, from others' experience. And even down in LA, they were, they're also talking to the Parks and Recs Department and California is a country of its own. Like you said, if we can leverage those two conversations simultaneously, I think you're right, though, learning about the permitting and the temporary aspect did seem to excite them. So that's really great to hear and something that we're definitely thinking about in terms of, hey, we just want to try this. Let us try it. We'll build it. We'll get as much, much many people on the court as possible for exposure. And it, it seems like it could be an exciting opportunity. I'm excited about this project and just really overall trying to help Squash in America grow. And I'm excited about where this can go. So anyone can feel free to reach out to myself or Lauren uh, and we'll embrace anyone uh, that's trying to do this. Please reach out. I do want to shift gears to a little bit more about you. And you've now been at Squash Drive, is it 10 years? Yes, 11, I believe, 11. Going into 11. And before we get into your background about how you got there, that's 
11 years at the at the helm of a program and you are clearly distinguished within the squash community as a leader but i'm curious about the the bay area and potentially the other nonprofits or the other entities that you work with and you having to be a leader within that community and what are some of the things that helped you the most in developing yourself as a leader that's a good question. So Connor, I moved to the Bay Area in 2005 and had a job in finance and was making a big life change to the Bay Area where I had my sister and some family. And I had been, I was previously living in San Diego. I could tell you about that, but moved to the Bay Area, picked up triathlons, did a half Ironman, hadn't really stepped on a squash court in a couple of years, to be a hundred percent honest. And Played a little bit, but I was a Bay Club member, but I could never get court time. So I said, okay, well, I'll learn how to bike and I'll learn how to run and I'll learn how to swim. <laughs> I joke, I knew how to do those things, but had never done any serious cycling, running or swimming in my life and picked that up. And that was really fun. And five years into working in the banking world, just decided, what do I, what do I want to do next? And like many people, Greg Zaff was the first person that I, I talked to and reached out to and had a great conversation with him about starting a SEA program. At the time, it was NUSEA and learned a lot from him, started some conversations, started playing a little squash again, which was exciting and felt pretty horrible at the time. I was like, oh, wow, I have to learn how to play squash again. But did that. I actually injured my knee in the process and had to have surgery on my knees for a second time, but started exploring squash in the Bay Area and realized that 15 years ago, or I guess it was, yeah, almost 15 years ago, that there was really not that much squash happening. And you could see there was a lot of people wanting to play, but there wasn't a lot of junior programs. There there had been a lot of work done from a lot of amazing people that over the years, but just there wasn't that many courts. And it was an exciting time to kind of think about squash. And a lot of people said to me, oh, we just, we don't have high school squash. We don't have middle school squash. We don't have a lot of kids playing, starting an SDA program. We need more juniors playing. Anyway, so I started emerging myself in the squash community, had some great initial conversations, Kevin Jernigan, Ross Revena, some Jamie Ford, some people that have really been instrumental early on to the start of Squash Drive, but started those conversations. That was my version of starting Squash Drive, just with finding people that were there, that were playing, that were lifelong squash players and engaged in the sport. And then I just emerged myself in not only wanting to start Squash Drive, but also knowing that the Bay Area, that squash had to grow. In order for squash drive mm -hmm. to be successful, the growth of squash in the Bay Area was necessary. And I think that's been on my mind from the start. And squash has done so much for me and my life. And to be able to give back in a variety of ways to squash was part of what, what made me excited about squash drive and, and the opportunity to start it. So a while back, were you wondering who our sponsor is? Well, the mystery is over. It's Pro Sport LED. Now, for a new mystery. What do they do? The innovators at Pro Sport LED develop custom solutions for each individual sport. 
based on photometric studies as well as understanding the needs of all people involved in the sport, from amateur players to the professionals, but also from the spectators to the facilities team taking care of the building. They'll develop the most technologically advanced LED lights. What's also great about this advanced LED technology is it takes the standard features but then goes further by addressing three more problems that competitors don't. They cure any glare issues or being blinded by the lights while playing your chosen sport. Each individual slim profile fixture can be Wi-Fi enabled so you can control the lights from the phone in your pocket. And they are perfect for the digital first media approach by providing 4K quality and consistency for any film or photography needs. Go beyond standard basic lighting. Pro Sport LED has you covered. Your trusted source for sports facility lighting with advanced LED technology. These lights are the perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but also easy to retrofit into existing buildings, likely saving you money in the long run. Find out more info by going to squashradio.com LED. We think they're great and so will you. And remind me the timeline when you started getting involved with UC Berkeley and their team. So that was also part of it. So as I had that conversation with Greg Zapp, he said, Lauren, you need a place to play. You need a board of directors and you need kids. And so all three of those things were, were fun and different. And so the place to play, I did a lot of talking and researching and UC Berkeley had these courts that were relatively underutilized outside of the team. There is a strong Berkeley squash community, but I went to the then director he was a handball player and wasn't the biggest fan of squash, but started talking to him. I volunteered as the coach of the women's squash team. And that was in 2009, I started that. So in 2009, I volunteer coached. That was part of how we, I started the conversation with them about squash drive. It took about a year for them to let us even think about the idea of coming on to use their courts. We started off with one day a week, and now we're there six days a week with amazing access to their facility. So it was a very slow and steady partnership that built. But coaching the UC Berkeley team has been a big part of my life, and I coached the men's team for two years as well on top of the women, and really loved coaching college squash. It was It's fun to see the different ages and the development and being a part of a team. Taking a, a club team to nationals was is really fun. They There's not a lot of teams to play on the West Coast, so it's such a rewarding experience for the young people on the team. So that's been a big part of my journey in the Bay Area for squash, uh, coaching the UC Berkeley's team. And you had mentioned a little bit about your career prior to switching full-time into squash world. And talk a little bit about what you were working on beforehand and how did that desire to shift gears come about? So I went to Penn. I graduated Penn in 2001. And when I was a senior, Squash Marts in Philadelphia had just started. And I knew some of the founders and had some conversations with them. And I think it was in their first year of programming when they had students. I was the captain of our team and volunteered our team to work with those first students and brought them to the Penn courts. They were, current, they were at the time playing at Drexel. 
And I just remember that being so rewarding and fun and a way to just getting to play squash with kids that were just learning. And I felt excited about that. I actually interviewed with Squash Marts as a program coordinator, I think, and decided not to take the opportunity then. But I will say it's been, it had been on my mind ever since. I went into marketing, sports marketing specifically. I worked for the, for Comcast Spectacor right out of college. I had an internship while I was in college. I've always been passionate about sports. I'm a big Philadelphia sports fan. I'm sitting here with my Eagles coffee cup. And at the time I was doing marketing for the whole arena, which was, oh, I wow. learned a lot. I was doing group sales marketing, learned a lot. I saw that as a, if you asked me back then what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told you that I wanted to be the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. So that path didn't happen yet, but that path got shifted a little. I really started to think about what I wanted to do. I actually ended up moving to San Diego, kind of ready to branch out from Philadelphia, moved to San Diego with a friend who was going to grad school. And I worked at an educational learning center called SCORE Educational Centers. And again, I wanted to do something I, I think I always knew I wanted to do something for others and good. What type of students, uh, sorry to interrupt, what kind of students were, was that program fulfilling, so serving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. SCORES is an educational center that was an online program that met kids where they were at. I feel like the sales pitch is in my head. It was, but it was a private, it was for anybody you came at, kids came after school for an hour and we would have a computer and they would log in and if. Billy was good at math and he was in sixth grade, but he was at an eighth grade math level, but at a fourth grade reading level, we could meet him where he was at. And the whole concept was that they got these little scorecards. So there was definitely a competitive mm -hmm. element, which I think resonated with me. And there was like a little basketball court, I think, inside the building and education and kind of understanding the importance of not every kid is the same in one area and this technology that was being developed at the time, which they really, if you got one thing wrong, it dropped a level. If you got it right, it bumped you back up. And it was really about repetition. And I did the work. There was a lot of elements of that I appreciated and I learned. And I also worked at it and I shifted gears and worked in a at a telecom company and I had a few different paths here as I was figuring out what was next. Worked at a telecom company that did voiceover internet and our hub center was in Romania. Very interesting. I, I was, I didn't get to go there, which I definitely was interested in. We had a call center there and that led to me moving up north to the Bay Area where I have family. My sister went to Stanford and met her husband out there and was starting a family. And so it made sense for me to be on the West Coast and be where I had family. So that made a little more sense and worked, got hired by a company called Providian, which is a credit card company. They got bought by Washington Mutual and then eventually got bought by Chase. So learned a lot there. And at the last transition of that job was when I really was taking a deep dive of what do I want to do next and what would be meaningful? And is there an opportunity in the Bay Area? I, I could see that squash, actually, I I think it was in 2009, and you might know this, Connor, there was a World Doubles event mm -hmm. at the University Club, and I, I can't remember if it was 2008 or 2009. I think 2008. Eight, that sounds right. Eight um, or nine, yeah, you're right. And a whole bunch of people came out, including one of my college teammates, Jessica DeMauro, who was a great, is a great squash player and is a good friend. And 
we re excited me about squash and I had tried a few different things that might in my time in the Bay Area, but came back to squash and yeah, got really excited about this idea of starting a program to serve the, the community and really learned a lot in the process. And it sounds like a lot about the process as you got it started and set up in Chicago. I feel like I just learned so much over the last, I think it, 11, 2009, I started it. I, yeah, I feel like I've just, I've learned a lot. You start with 12 kids and I had no, you know, and volunteers and me and I, I laughed. There was, there was a lot. It was a, a lot to do then and just been learning ever since. And the community has really come together in such an amazing way. And that's definitely been part of the excitement for me is just watching the growth and the amount of people that have gotten involved that have really been instrumental in the leadership and the growth of it has been exciting. It's been tremendous. And I think that a lot of these programs, the SAA programs throughout the United States have really been a catalyst for the community to come together to throw their passion behind squash. And it takes people like yourself who are willing to make that transition and that leap of, I'm going to take this on and make it happen. So it's a big deal. I'd like to actually quickly rewind the clock and just spend a little bit of time. When you're making that transition period, once you latch on to what I want to do next, that's almost the, the hardest part is figuring out what to do next, in my opinion then sure, how to go accomplish that is hard. It has its own set of challenges. But back up a little bit and talk about how did you go about figuring out what to do next? Because I think sometimes that can help people, even if it's just like I spoke to friends. But how were you solving that problem of what to do next? Yeah, that was, I think I mentioned I had a conversation with Greg. I probably also probably talked to Tim Wyan if I had a guess. And probably a few other executive directors at the time to ask them exactly what you said. Where do you go? You don't know. And I think it was really about, I had to ask people to connect me to people because to be honest, I didn't know a lot of people. I'm from Philadelphia. I was relatively new to the Bay Area. I hadn't been playing a lot of squash and I, I had friends, but not necessarily a huge squash network in the Bay Area. Being from Philly, that was, there was a lot of Philly connections, which was great. And I mentioned Jamie Ford, who was one of our first board members, as well as a friend of mine from high school who played squash recreationally. His name is Matt Price and kind of had some of those conversations, got connected. My family was extremely supportive in terms of any connections they had and helping me navigate all the paths of finding a lawyer to help file the 501c3 and really those three elements, finding a board. So you can start a board with three people, which we did and finding the courts. And I found those at UC Berkeley and then the kids and partnerships with schools. And I would say that was all these steps. There was challenges and learning along the way and just had so many people step up to offer their time and energy to either have coffee or meet with me for a drink or tea or whatever it was. It was really amazing and really just felt lucky that after I did make that decision, and I will say this, Connor, someone challenged me like, oh, I don't think that the Bay Area is, needs or is ready for this. And I think that was all I needed to prompt me to, to want to do it even more in some ways. I have been called Tapping competitive. competitive nature. Yeah, I think I think there's a theme with squash players in general, not all maybe, but yeah, no, I think that there was that kind of 
oh, wait, somebody's saying they don't think I can do this. And I think the real thing, like you said, it's just make, it's just being 100% committed. And I would say within a, a few weeks of having those initial conversations, I had to do some deep, serious thinking to make this big transition out of the, the for-profit world, but definitely had been in the back of my mind and really feel so lucky that I made that decision changed my life for the better in so many ways. And I've just learned so much. And really, I am just grateful for the experience. I'm curious, were there any paths that you were close to taking other than going down the one you went down? I mean, I think the path that was happening was that like just staying on the the finance marketing, credit card banking marketing path would have mm-hmm. been the, the easy path. And kind of the one that maybe I was expected to take. I, I I think though that, like I said, just so many people that were supportive to to say, hey, try it. Worst thing is, you know, it doesn't work or you can't do it. And then you can always go back to that kind of thing. So it felt like the right time. It felt like I did feel and see that squash was becoming, you could see that just the fact that I had joined the Bay Club and I couldn't get a squash court that in itself was telling me that there was people that wanted to play and there was an opportunity there. And I also, I think at the same time, started playing double squash, which was this whole new game and so fun and something I'm really enjoying now. And yeah, I think I think it was the right time. And I think I just got lucky that it, it happened at a good time for me uh, to be able to make a big transition. I got the the doubles bug when I was living in Denver for a little bit. And it's really, it's such a fun sport. And it's crazy to think that there's only basically 160 doubles courts in the world. So now where I'm living, their closest one is about an hour away. So it's a little, just a little bit too far for me, but can't wait to get back out there. I'm going to transition a little bit and go through uh, a, a series of questions that we like to ask every listener, and we call it the quick fire section. Are you, are you ready for this? Yes. <laughs> so we'll start off in somewhat an easy area, and it's just, do you have a favorite movie or a documentary that is something that you really love? I would not call myself a movie buff, and in, in mostly because I haven't made enough time to watch movies. but. I have to go for that question. I have to go for like an old time. I love the Rocky movies and that's my like Philadelphia passion. And just, yeah, always just remember watching those as a kid and um, getting excited about it whenever I see anything related to that. So I'll say Rocky. I love it. And is there any one of the Rockies that jumps out for you? I, I, I like, I like them all. I've watched, I haven't watched too many of them more than once. I'm not, I, I don't uh, rewatch, tend to rewatch movies, but I, I would say the original, the first one is probably, is definitely my favorite. That's a classic. And that's funny. Jack Wyant, the head coach of Penn, Rocky was also his favorite movie. So oh, I wonder funny. if there's something <laughs> in the water about being from Philadelphia. It's indoctrination. The next thing is, and this could be either an activity or something like your Phillies mug, sorry, your Eagles mug. What is something or an activity that brings you disproportionate amount of happiness? Man, that's tough. Um, that's It's easy and tough. It's like, how do you pick just one? Well, I would say before I had kids, I would say that I really like watching football, which is just, it's definitely an Eagles thing, but... I 
play fantasy football and really love watching football, which is, I know, so random. Maybe it's just the relaxation that happens. And I, I don't think I've um, given myself a, enough time yet to relax. So Sundays and football in the past have been a thing. I will say, since I've had kids, and this is super cliche, but I would say now I, I think spending time with Zoe and Zach and Busani and just watching them literally grow. It feels like they grow every day. It's amazing. They're just learning. And I would say that's my very two answers to the question, but um, really enjoying being a mom and watching these two little people provide us uh, a lot of entertainment. <laughs> well, I have to ask about the, the fantasy football. Are you still playing? I, I didn't play this last year, and for the first time in, for, in forever, I'm still in a suicide pool that I just realized the football season is starting on Sunday, so I'm behind right now, but I wait for it to happen, and then I get right in. So the Eagles play on Sunday, and I'll be excited to get to watch that. It will be different being on the East Coast again, 1 o'clock instead of 10 a.m. football, so an adjustment there, but... Yes, I've uh, enjoyed fantasy football and just maybe because it's so different and it's getting into the stats and getting the opportunity to watch the games and just see what's happening in that world a little bit different than squash. I love it. And would, if there was no fantasy football, would you still have the same level of enjoyment of just watching football or is it the combination these days that is really making it work for you? Oh, no, I, I just, I really just like watching football. I, and I like going to football games. And I actually went to the Super Bowl when the Eagles won the Super Bowl in 2018. And my children were three months old. And if anyone wants to ask my husband about that, you, you should. But we, <laughs> we, uh, I went with my dad and, and stepbrothers and we just had a great time. And all elements of football work for me. Fantasy football, live tailgating, the whole or just getting to watch it at home or at a bar and excited to do it from the East coast. Now it'll be a little different, a little later, get to sleep in a little bit, except that with toddlers, you don't get to sleep in. I like it. Well, so my next question is about what gets you fired up. And usually I, the way I phrase this is it doesn't have to be just in squash world. It could be about anything else, but I might challenge you what besides football would get you <laughs> fired up. And it could be well, negative a, or positive. There's, I would say we've talked a little bit about Corona, but we didn't talk as much about some of the other things going on in our country right now. And I would say I'm pretty fired up about what's happening. And I'm not a political person, so I'm not even going to go there, but just the, the, all the racial injustice happening and being brought to light and this challenge that our whole community has, and I, I can bring it to the squash community, I think as an SEA executive director, it, we have a lot to think about in terms of how we want to engage with our students and how we want to serve them and serve them the best way. And, and there's some serious challenges. And SEA is, has been a leader in helping organize the, the conversations around the SEA programs. And I, as I make this transition out, I think this is a topic that I am really wanting to stay engaged on and in. And I think that yesterday I sat in on a training and that SEA organized for a hundred SEA staff and leaders. And 
really a conversation about systemic racism and the challenges that are out there and that our students are going through and, or I should say living, not going through, that are living their lived experience and what's happening. So I don't know if fired up is the right word, but I would say that I am really wanting to do more work myself on learning and figuring out ways to, to take action for myself personally. I'm also married to a black man from Zimbabwe and he's not an American, but he's a US citizen and um, not from this country, I should say. And watching what's happening as somebody that is lives with a person of color and now has two kids that are black, I think that's a something that's really a high priority for me in this in my next chapter, as I know that there's a lot of work to do. I completely understand and would echo that. And you mentioned the political thing. And as a way as describing to someone else, I was like, this isn't left or right or any political. This is above politics. This is really, we're talking about humanity. And we need to rise to that level of making it more balanced for everyone because it's just clearly unbalanced right now. I love one thing I've been certainly working on is learning more, examining my own actions. I have not yet either found what's the right way I can totally throw my energy behind. And if you ever think of, or you have tips or helps on that, please send them my way. I'm certainly, I'm working with my own high school from a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, task force perspective of really trying to help our school understand that. And really my focus is more on the broader alumni because I I know I can more quickly on. I think that there's a, a whole slew of attention going on the students and, and they're probably Um, way better equipped people to handle that, but I can handle conversations with my peers and either older generations or younger generations. So long-winded way of saying if please share whatever you have because I care and want to make a difference just as I did in squash. This is another area that I, I know needs attention and want to help. Great. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are there's a lot of people that are thinking about this and it's top of mind. And I think it's really hard and often uncomfortable, but I think it's, it's so necessary. And you're, you said it very well. It's, it's above Paul. It's just about humanity. It's, it really is. And so I just think I have my own work to do. And I, for anybody listening, I'm, I think there are a lot of resources out there and it is for me just an opportunity and trying to figure out what I want to read and start absorbing and learning and growing. So my next question, and perhaps this is related, perhaps it's not, has to do with just sharing an inspirational piece of content. And that could be video or written, but just something that, you know, over your lifetime that has really just, you've shared with a lot of friends or just really had a deep impact on you. And so is there anything that jumps to mind? It could be a video or a blog or an article. That's a good question. I am just, we're on a, we're on a podcast here. I've been getting into podcasts, been asking for recommendations. And for me, I, I don't think I have anything historically that I would say I've shared with a lot of people. I think that just the power of positivity and trying to seeing the positive and I'm, I feel like I, I get inspired by people that are doing good work and reading and listening to other people. I've listened to a bunch of the Malcolm Gladwell podcasts and inspired by him and some of those conversations and 
I think there's so much access to great information now. So I am always looking for more to learn. And I would say I don't have one particular thing that I would share that I would say, but in general, anything that Malcolm Gladwell shares, I've been intrigued by and, and interested in. He's fascinating. All the everything he writes and his podcasts, I've been a big fan of that too. But Outlier really was just a huge eye-opening way to look at the world differently. And I've, I've gone after more of that kind of pursuit. And you also mentioned positivity. And I got to say, that's pretty big. And between my wife and I, she just went back to Penn and got her master's degree in uh, positive psychology. So we we spend a good chunk of time or me learning about that and her sharing what she's learning. So it's, we're all about positivity. Amazing. I love it. I love it. I love it that they, that that's, that they have a program just for that. It's great. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a master's in applied positive psychology and it's a great, uh, really great team. So the last question I had for you, and I know you said that this might be challenging. So I'm curious if you've, if you have some thoughts on this, but let me set the stage again. The scenario is that you have to give a TED talk, but the rules are it's something that you couldn't talk about, something you're known for or obviously known for. So basically it's asking, what are you curious about? What would you want to spend time researching and then share with the world about? What would spark your interest? I'm like, can I take a long pause here? Sure. <laughs> Um, no. One of the things, uh, if you want to go back to, if the next chapter involves talking about uh, race in America, that can be it. Whatever direction you want. Yeah, that's definitely something. Race in America, and I think definitely not being an expert in it, but wanting to have a voice and find my voice in it, I feel like could be an exciting part of my next chapter as I raise my children and with my husband. And I think that, uh, I think that there's so much to learn. And I know a lot of people are doing TED talks about that right now and in general, but I think, I think that's something I'm definitely interested in exploring. Well, so the last question I like to ask people, and it's really because uh, it can be about any topic or anything, but are there any books that you would recommend for people to read or that you've highly enjoyed reading yourself? So. I was excited you asked that. So what I'm reading right now, and I've been trying to make time for reading, and I'll say this, that anybody with kids, I, I have not read a lot of books lately, and I um, wish I had time and excited possibly for this next chapter to have more time to read. But I'm actually reading the book, which, Connor, I'm curious if you've read, Break a Sweat, Change Your Life by Bill Simon or William Simon Jr. officially. So Bill Simon was the longtime chairman of SEA and he's on the West Coast and I'm in the process of reading it and I'm thoroughly enjoying it because it's all about just how important being active is and for your health. And I think why this book is resonating, especially in a time like now where we don't have squash courts available to us and for us at our program, we also don't have a squash for our students that we serve and just recognizing like how important it is to be active and to 
to teach that to our young people and to instill it. And the statistics are just halfway through the book and the statistics are astounding about the obesity and how to avoid it. And when children are obese, they're, it's unbelievable. So I am really enjoying that book. So I'm excited to finish it soon. And I just thought I would share that because for me, sports has changed my life. Squash has changed my life and made such a big impact. And I feel so lucky to have started squash drive to be able to be giving back to it to the sport but also just in a time where we might not be able to play as much thinking about what other ways to stay active and I was inspired by David Kay's goal of swimming the English channel love that goal for him and excited to see him achieve that and cheer him on but I think just um, instilling the need for physical activity on a daily basis is just so important and a big reminder to me that's a big part of what we do at Squash Drive. That sounds fascinating. And I haven't read that book, but I'd love to. I will go check that out. And Simon has done so much for the sport. So I'd love to, to hear his thoughts on that. And definitely during this quarantine period, it made me very, get very creative and curious about other ways to stay in shape. And I think by default, I would always say I would use squash as a crutch almost that if I have it in my life, I will then work out more. So here is like, you have no access. What do you do? And basically turn my attic into a small little gym and it's been fun. And it really does reduce the, hey, there's no driving. There's no commuting. There's no, it's like literally walking up 10 steps of stairs and that you have to go work out. So hopefully sustainable. And I've certainly been enjoying it. And I'm not quite corn toned just yet, but it's at least getting <laughs> on a better path. Well, that brings us to the end of our interview for today. I know uh, you have a, a full-time job and uh, both being a parent and executive director of Squash Drive, but I just really want to thank you for your time, not only today, but over the past couple of years for everything you've been doing for the sport. And I've certainly enjoyed the conversations we have, and I look forward to more. Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you for having me. Um, Really excited to continue our conversation about outdoor squash. And in general, now we're a little closer. I want to know where that doubles court is. And I'll drive an hour for doubles. So I need to find out how far it is from me. <laughs> but th thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.